Hello and welcome to the Tebby podcast from The Evidence-Based Investor. I'm Robin Powell. This podcast is brought to you by Regis Media, which provides financial advice and planning firms with high-quality video content. In this episode, we're discussing the Neil Woodford scandal. Woodford, for the benefit of those outside the UK, is Britain's best-known fund manager. For many years, his track record was very impressive. He was lauded in the media. He was even referred to by the BBC as the man who can't stop making money. But then things began to go wrong. And three years ago, the wheels came off in spectacular fashion when his flagship equity income fund was suspended. The industry, of course, as the industry usually does, did really rather well out of it. Woodford Equity Income was Britain's biggest fund launch. The fund earned a fortune for Woodford himself and for the many brokers and platforms who helped to promote it. The outcome for investors, however, was rather different. More than 300,000 people, many of them near or already in retirement, lost more than £1 billion between them in one of the biggest financial scandals of modern times. Our guests on this episode are two highly respected journalists who've each written a book on the Woodford saga. They are Owen Walker from the FT and David Ricketts from Dow Jones. I started by asking David Ricketts how the Woodford scandal compares with some of the other big financial scandals we've seen in the UK in recent years. Yeah, well, this is actually this is a huge, huge scandal, particularly in financial services. I mean, if we look back at uh, some of the other scandals that have taken place, if you look at the number of people that have been affected by the Woodford scandal, so around about 300,000 retail investors, that's a huge number of people nursing significant losses. Um, also, the sums of money involved as well. I mean, we're looking at losses already around about one, one billion pounds at least. Um, if we compare that to some of the other scandals that have taken place recently, if we go back to 2009, the Arch Crew scandal, for example, um, again, funds that were sold to investors on the premise they were um, low risk, um, these were actually nothing but. They were actually investing in very complex investments, uh, including you know, shipping and, and wine. Um, those funds blew up, um, affecting around about 20,000 retail investors and amounting to losses of around about 200 million or so. Um, more recently, we've had the uh, London Capital and Finance scandal. Again, that was something that was seen that happened under the FCA's watch. Um, it affected a, a number of, of retail investors. Again, they were advised to invest in these mini bonds that were again perceived as low risk. Again, another another scandal that blew up. Um, so I think if we look at those two recent scandals, looking at Woodford in comparison, I mean, the, the, the fallout is huge. And I think if you look at the repercussions as well, um, the, the kind of fallout for the, the, the investment management sector more widely, what this means in terms of, um, you know, people taking um, financial decisions into their own hands, uh, what it means for the advice market and everything else. I think that there's a, there's a huge... Um, fallout from all of this as well that, that really puts those other scandals I've mentioned uh, probably for lesser down the spectrum I think. Owen for you why do you think Woodford stands out above those other scandals that David has mentioned? Yeah I mean and, and just to add some context there I, you know I think probably the biggest financial scandal Britain's had in recent years is, is undoubtedly PPI 
which, you know, that's 64 million policies which were missold, uh, over 50 uh, billion dollars of or pounds of compensation from banks. Um, so with that in context, but, but the David mentioned the, the investment scandals, which are depressingly common factor of the British uh, recent history, mis-selling scandals after mis-selling scandals. The, one he mentioned, the ones he mentioned were undoubtedly very bad, but they uh, affected tens of thousands of people. With the Woodford case, we've got hundreds of thousands of people. This is the UK's best-known fund manager of his generation, one of his, the biggest funds in Britain. And hundreds of thousands of people invested their hard-earned savings, their retirement pots, with this man, with his funds, in expectation of getting uh, an outcome which would really see them through into retirement. And what happened with the equity income fund? Its suspension and the uh, billion pound plus of losses these people will have, have made absolute life-changing consequences for them. And as David alluded to, huge ramifications for the investment management industry, but also the whole financial advisory model, the whole regulatory model that sits around that and is supposed to be protecting consumers. It's just had huge ramifications in the way that the earlier mis-selling mis scandals, they just didn't have that wider reach. David, the books that you've both written on this subject show that there were in fact a number of guilty players, if you like. To, to what extent is it all down to, to Woodford? Uh, and to what extent were other players responsible for what happened? Yeah, I think it's, it's probably unfair uh, to, to, paint, to, to pin all the blame on, on one individual or one party. I think we can maybe take a step back and look at what happened and who was, was guilty and who, who played a part in, in, in what happened. So, yeah, first of all, Woodford, the, the man himself, he was somebody who was, as, as Owens alluded to, this, this rock star fund manager. He, he built this incredible career while he was at Invesco over a 20-year period. Um, he generated superior returns, if you like, compared to his, his, uh, his peers, his rivals, um, and you know, investors who invested money in his fund uh, during the late 80s were richly rewarded uh, with returns uh, over the 25 years that he was at that firm. Um, you know, he, he built his name because he managed to, um, well, avoid two big sort of uh, milestone events, if you like, in, in kind of the, the British uh, sort of financial services history. Uh, if we look at the, the dot-com bubble in, in, tw in 2000, when that burst, um, you know, Woodford was somebody who invested in tobacco stocks, big blue chip companies. Um, that was his style. Um, and when, when the tech stocks went belly up, he was vindicated. He was facing a lot of pressure to, to follow the herd and invest in some of these companies, um, particularly even by his, his superiors at Invesco, who wondered, you know, why, is, why are all the other fund managers piling into tech stocks and you're just kind of sticking to, to what you know best? Um, but yeah, when, when the, the, the dot-com uh, bubble burst, he was vindicated, and again, his reward, his investors were, were richly rewarded, as was he. He managed to do the same thing again during the financial crisis, managed to avoid all the bank stocks. So again, when everything went, went belly up then, he was vindicated and his investors were rewarded as a result of that. Um, what, what, the reason I, I sort of talk about his investment style is he started to stray away from that sort of... Um, uh, mainstream kind of investment philosophy where he looked at investing in very large liquid companies and started to favour the smaller um, maybe startup companies that were harder to trade, harder to buy and sell shares in. So um, that's one thing we can we can talk a bit more about but I think his you know his style drift if you like um, towards the end of his career at Invesco and particularly when he set up his new firm 
and his new fund uh, in 2014 when he struck out on his own. Um, that was one thing that maybe led to the downfall, the, the kind of the style of, of investment management that he was um, pursuing. So that's one thing um, that, that perhaps we could we can apportion some blame for that, the change in style. Um, there are a host of other players involved in this as well. There's Hargreaves Lansdowne, who we, again we can talk a bit more about, how they championed Neil Woodford's fund right from the outset. The heavy promotion the fund was given during the offer period. This was a fund that, uh, that went on to become the most successful new fund launch in British history. Um, so retail investors were encouraged to invest large sums of money in this fund. Um, Peter Hargreaves, the co-founder of Hargreaves Lansdowne, telling investors he was putting his own money in that fund. Mark Dampier, the head of investment research at Hargreaves Lansdowne at the time. Again, someone else who plugged that fund very heavily. So Hargreaves Lansdowne continued to promote that fund even during a period where performance started to turn and there are a lot of questions around why that was the case. So I think there are a few questions around Hargreaves Lansdowne's role in all this as well. Um, undoubtedly, a lot of people will look at the, the FCA and, and the regulators role in all this, why the warning signs weren't picked up sooner. Um, there are lots of question marks around the culture and compliance at Woodford's new firm, why the FCA didn't pick up on that sooner. Again, that's something they, they need to answer. Um, but I think the biggest question mark and perhaps the the, the player that gets a lot of attention is, is Link, so the, the, the authorised corporate director, the entity that was overseeing Woodford's main fund, checking or should have been checking that he was um, adhering to the compliance, the rules around investment management. That was the entity that was answerable to the FCA um, and that's the entity that, that now a lot of questions are being asked about and I think um, we have some, some law firms now even pursuing legal action um, against Link um, to try and recoup some of the losses on behalf of investors. So Link is another entity um, that, that does have a lot to answer for. So those to me are the kind of the four main players in this story and um, yeah those are the ones I think stand out for me as the ones who are um, yeah ones who need to answer questions about what happened. So Owen we saw this drift away from um the style that had been successful for Neil Woodford in the past. And, and, and you could say he, he started to focus on an area that he really had no experience or very little experience in. Um, and yes, he was partly to blame for that, but surely there were other people who should have, you know, seen the warning signs, if you like, that he was actually straying off piste. Um, surely they um, have something to answer for here? Yeah, I, I mean, the thing about when Woodford launched his new business in 2014, he went out there uh, and one of the big attractions to a lot of people was how transparent it was going to be. Unlike a lot of other fund managers, he was going to show every single uh, investment he made within his funds. A lot of other fund managers will only show you their top 10 holdings. So what he was doing was in plain sight from the off. You know, his investments in these small, unlisted, unquoted companies, these small, very thinly traded companies, uh, it was in full view. He, he would, he would uh, produce these documents uh, monthly, which would show every single holding. At the very beginning, they were very small, and most people probably didn't get to that page in the documentation. Though, if you're somebody uh, like, for example, Hargreaves Lansdowne, who is heavily promoting these funds, it is your job to be looking at those documents and scrutinising every single holding. 
and looking at the liquidity of each of those holdings and stress testing to make sure that if, as we saw, happened, there is a run on the fund, people are pulling money out, he'll be forced to sell his most uh, traded companies, the, the, the FTSE 100 companies, the blue chips he'd, he'd been most uh, closely associated with. <clears throat> he'll then be left with this rump of uh, small, small cap, unquoted companies which he would really struggle to sell. So it would be the likes of the fund promoters, the, the intermediaries, the financial advisors who were promoting his funds to their clients. They should be aware of this. Likewise, his compliance team within the business, I think David did a good job of, of, of talking about the various people who were involved in this. The compliance team within the business would have been fully aware of the holdings and the sorts of pressure that would happen in the event that the fund came under stress as should have the people like the depository, um, Northern Trust, or the uh, authorised corporate director, Link. These people should be very much focused on what was going on. And the Financial Conduct Authority as well. You know, this information was out there. They really should have been on the ball. They, they outsourced a lot of that decision-making and oversight to the authorised corporate director, to Link. And um, as we've seen, the, you know, the results of a lot of people kind of looking the other way and not really paying close enough attention to what was going on uh, had really, really bad consequences. How much sympathy do you both have for the investors involved? I mean, you could say, playing devil's advocate, that they you know, should have been aware of the risks. You know, we, 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 we know the data on, on, on active fund performance and the fact that past performance doesn't predict future performance, if you like. Um, how much sympathy do you have? Well, I think it's very difficult as a, as a retail investor now. I mean, there's a lot of emphasis on, on you, the individual, to make your own investment decision, particularly when it comes to you know, retirement. So you know, the DC pension model, for example, places more risk, more emphasis on the risk on the individual. Um, and obviously, there is an, uh, an environment now where you know, there is more DIY uh, investment platforms and um, you know, people are taking financial matters into their own hands um, because it, it's cheap, it's easy to do. Um, but what I would say is that people you know, taking financial decisions need to do their research. And I think you know, that, that's the key thing. This is one of the lessons I think that needs to be learned from all this is that you know, despite there, the, the information that's out there, you do need to kind of do your research and make sure there are no kind of biases or any kind of hidden agendas involved in, in why a fund is being promoted. So with the case of Hargreaves Lansdowne, for example, you know, this fund was, again, heavily promoted by the platform. Um, it was on the best buy list. Um, now, best buy lists is, uh, is probably an area that, that will come under a lot more scrutiny as a result of, of the Woodford scandal. Um, but, you know, Neil Woodford's fund was promoted on that best buy list, even at a time when Hargreaves Lansdowne had concerns about the performance um, and we're starting to ask questions about the number of unquoted companies he was holding. So there's a question to be asked there about, well, why is a fund um, buy list, which is so influential, you know, it drives a lot of money into, into funds because that is a list that investors go to because they trust the, the platform that's providing it to have done the background research. Um, you know, th these guys are the experts, so you would expect the experts, the experts to have the kind of inside track on what's going on. Um, so I think, um, you know, I do have sympathy for those investors that relied on those buy lists to some extent because they, f they felt that the research had been done to a, to a high enough standard. Um, and having spoken to people that worked at Hargreaves Lansdowne in, in the research from my book, you know, the, the kind of the impression I got was that, you know, Neil Woodford had come from this, this large investment management operation in Vesco where he'd worked for 25 years 
and he'd set up this new fund. The expectation was that he would just carry on doing what he was doing at Invesco. Um, now, you know, if you go and speak to any other new fund manager coming into, into the market, they will tell you that they have to jump through a lot of hoops before they get put onto a, a best buy list. Um, you need a track record of at least you know, three years before you're even looked at. Um, so launching a new fund should not necessarily be seen as carrying on what you're doing at your old shop. You know, this was a, a brand new fund um, that should have been given a lot more scrutiny um, than, than it was actually given from the outset. So I, I do have a lot of sympathy for, for investors. And, and sorry, just to pick up on that point, when Woodford launched, this was the most anticipated fund launch probably ever in, Brit in Britain. This was the, the most famous fund manager. He was going alone and he was launching his own business. And there was a great clamour uh, among financial advisors, journalists, um, but, but, and to be part of that and to, to, to have some sort of coverage or to, and to kind of present it in some way. And a lot of the intermediaries, um, the fund supermarkets, were desperate to have this fund on their platforms. And Hargreaves bent over backwards and offered uh, more than the competitors to say, we want you on our best buy list and we want to uh, invest our own funds in your fund, our multi-manager funds in your fund. Um, and we'll do that from day one. And in return, uh, you give us the, uh, the biggest discount on the markets that we can then go out and promote. And they had this in their marketing material. Come to Hargreaves Lansdowne to invest in Neil Woodford's new fund, the cheapest place on the market. Um, and that was very much, they got a lot of new customers on the back of it. They did it, put a lot of marketing spend into promoting it in that way. And so that's where you can see there was a lot of emphasis on promoting this fund to their own uh, clients and, and, and actually to, to their own customers to bring in customers on the back of this promotion. Uh, and so that's where, why we see there was a lot of promotion of the fund. Um, and as David says, on best buy lists, and so if you're, the, if you're an end investor and you've been told this, this guy's the best fund manager around, he's got a new business, uh, this is the way to get on his fund at the cheapest, operate, the cheapest cost in the market, you know, sounds great. These guys are supposed to be financial experts. They're telling me to do this. It, it's very hard to blame them. And we, we shouldn't forget as well that the, kind of the, the media following that, that Woodford had. I mean, he was seen as a, a rock star fund manager. I mean, the financial press loved him. Um, you know, he was somebody who generated incredible returns over his career. Um, and he was kind of lauded as this this guy who had the Midas touch, you know, the Oracle of, of Oxford. He was he was known as. Um, so you know there was there was a kind of a buzz, a hype around around this new fund launch as well. You know that's why it went on to become the the most successful fund launch in in British history. So there was a bit there was a good a big story around Neil Woodford when he decided to launch his new venture. Um, and I think you know there there are a lot of retail investors who perhaps got caught up in the hype. Um, and we shouldn't forget that a lot of those investors that were with him during his time at Invesco would have followed him out the door to his new venture as well. So again, the expectation was that, that he would have carried on doing what he was doing at Invesco. Um, and the other, the other point to, to raise here about you know, sympathy for retail investors is that when, they, when that fund was initially launched, the equity income fund, the holdings, you know, when, when it was revealed, as Owen alluded to, the, this was billed as being very transparent. The, the full list of holdings was, was put out there there were lots of blue chip companies that, that Woodford had, had invested in the past in there, but there, was, there were a few uh, unquoted companies that started to, to creep in as well. By the time that fund, you know, two or three years later, um, you've got the likes of Jupiter, you know, a large city institutional investor, pulling their money from the fund because they started to have concerns about the number of unquoteds in the portfolio. So if you've got a large 
institutional investor having concerns about this, you know, what hope have the, the retail uh, investor um, got really who don't have the same level of you know, knowledge and sophistication uh, as the guys who are running tens, hundreds of, of, of billions of pounds. So um, I do have some sympathy for retail investors there who perhaps weren't aware that Woodford had strayed so heavily into the unquoted um, because I think the, the big players here in the city had, had definitely seen the writing was on the wall. Owen, as David said, Woodford was heavily promoted in the financial media. I know that neither of your publications were uh, promoting his fund, uh, but uh, lots of media outlets were. And there's a problem here, isn't there? Because journalists, and, and I'm a journalist myself, we need stories, and, and Woodford was a story. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and, and this taps into this whole idea of, of star fund managers. And, th and this culture really came about in, say, the, the 80s and 90s, the early 2000s. We're all financial journalists. You, you know, you, you go in, you're writing stories about numbers, but you want a character, you want a story, you want, you want some colour in there. And Neil Woodford provided that in spades. He was, um, he was down to earth in many ways. Uh, he, he, he lived a lifestyle... Uh, you know, he was, he was a multimillionaire, but he lived a lifestyle maybe that we might imagine if we came into money. He bought fast cars, big places in the countryside, later, you know, got into a lifestyle of fast horses. Um, maybe I wouldn't have bought the horses, but, but that's beside the point. Uh, so he kind of lived this lifestyle, and, and, but also the, the way he spoke to, to journalists was very much matter-of-factly. He could explain what was his portfolio, what his strategy was. Uh, in very easy to understand terms, and, and that really came across compared to maybe a lot of the, the stuffier, the more bookier uh, uh, fund managers that we're more used to dealing with. So his personality became the story as well, um, but also his returns. He did have these incredible returns, um, certainly for long periods uh, throughout his career. And as David alluded to earlier, you know, he had these two near-death experiences, the, the, the dot-com uh, bu bubble bursting and, and the financial crash. Both of, both of which he, he kind of sailed through unscathed. So the, the financial press certainly built him up. And this, this story of the guy could read the runes, he could, he could, he could find out what was going on, and, and he could see into the future. And, and I think he, he really believed that his own press, because in the dying days of his own business, um, he was convinced and hell-bent, uh, you know, having spoken to, to people he worked with, that his course would see him through. And, and, and he'd, he'd, you know, survive these two... Uh, experiences before and he was going to come through again. Um, and that, but that star fund manager culture, uh, you know, it really relies on individuals and, and their own um, powers in, 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 the, in the investment markets. Now, you know, if you speak to any statistician, this is, this is kind of the, uh, eventually there will be a reversion to mean. You know, you cannot have uh, a, a, a winning streak that goes on for years without at some point spectacularly collapsing. That's just the way, you know, the rules of, of, of economics work. Um, so while you may get some managers who are a bit bumpier, you do get these others who, who, whose strategies dictate that they go on really uh, great runs for several years and they just come crashing down to earth. And that was very much Woodford style was, was that. Um, so 
what you do get often with the star fund managers is, is they do have these these streaks and then it comes to an end and people say well why do we trust why do we go in, in with this guy in the first place because it all went spectacularly wrong and we saw a lot of those stories happening in the, the 2010s and I think now we're kind of moving away from that model I think yeah I was just going to add to that I think actually we you know the, the, the kind of star fund manager culture was kind of starting to be on its way out really before the, the whole Woodford uh, scandal erupted um, but certainly now what you are seeing is more of a, a team-based approach. I think if you talk to a lot of asset managers in, in London, here in the city, they will, they, they will emphasise the team player uh, kind of mentality of their firms now rather than the key individuals. And I think you know, they've, they've learnt from not only Woodford, but if we go back you know, several years ago to, to PIMCO, for example, when Bill Gross, who managed you know, tens of, of, of billions of dollars uh, over one of their flagship funds, as soon as he left PIMCO, you know, they, they lost... Um, Billions of pounds, billions of dollars, uh, just just went out the the firm overnight. So again, a key man risk, if you like, by putting all the assets with key, with one person. Um, and I think that's something that firms have tried to steer away from ever since. Having said that, there are still individuals here in the UK retail market that do command that kind of star culture. Terry Smith being the most notable example, one of the best-selling retail firm managers here in the UK. Um, but I think even Terry. Smith is starting to realise that he needs to talk more about succession planning, who within Fundsmith is likely to take over the baton when he retires. So I think even, even some of the staff fund managers themselves are starting to realise that maybe they need to talk up their succession planning a bit more now to allay any concerns retail investors might have about what happens when this person steps down or leaves unexpectedly, what will happen to the fund and to, to my money, essentially. You say, David, that asset managers have learned from Woodford, um, and, 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 and let's hope they have. The crucial thing, of course, is have investors uh, learned from Woodford. And, and even since then, I mean, in Australia, for example, we've, we've seen this guy, Hamish Douglas, not as spectacular as, as Neil Woodford, but a, a similar fall to earth, if you like. And, of course, very spectacularly in the United States, we've seen Cathy Wood, uh, and the extraordinary uh, demise of the uh, ARK Innovation uh, ETF. Um, Owen, is this a story that will just carry on repeating itself again and again? Well, I would like to hope not. Um, I think we do have a, a natural human instinct to, to put our faith in individuals, and there's certainly um, very strong investor traits to want to, to catch a, a star on the way up, which means that often people will start investing in a fund past its, its ascension and actually probably when it's on its way down. And you, know, you gave some, some good examples there um, because it's only really when, when these people have accumulated their you know, you know, year-long or two-year-long streak and they're kind of you know, outdoing the market by you know, 20, 30%, that's when people really take a notice. But you know, you'd probably say that's probably the time to, to bail on those funds because it can't continue forever. Um, so hopefully we, we, we will be moving to uh, a period where, where those sorts of individuals and, and, and names will be promoted less. But unfortunately, I think it is human instinct that, that we'll probably never escape the kind of the lure of the, of the star and, and the, the person who's really excelling when that's probably a, a, a warning sign to maybe that's the time to bail. The data shows us overwhelmingly that in the long run, investors are much better off uh, avoiding star fund managers, indeed 
active fund management altogether and simply investing in the whole market in a very low cost and efficient way. But of course, that's a, a boring story, isn't it? Is that the problem? Um, and, and is that something that the media, as well as the industry, needs to address? That actually what's best for the investor is actually quite dull, but they need to be told. Um, that, that's a good point. I think actually you're right. I think you know, if we look at passive funds, ETFs, they can be kind of seen as boring uh, compared to you know, star fund managers or stock pickers who are kind of making decisions every day about which companies to invest in and providing a, an argument about why they're doing that. So I think, yeah, there is certainly more of a, an interest in the media, if you like, from, from the media in some of these fund managers about why they're investing in certain companies, what's the rationale for investing in, in this particular company and you know, what's the long-term kind of outlook, if you like, what, what's your, your argument for doing so. Um, I think you know, at a time when you, know, you look at the track record of a lot of active fund managers, I mean, the, the very, very few fund managers actually beat the benchmark over a, a sort of five or 10 year period. So the, the, the evidence is very much out there, very strong evidence that actually investors will be better off putting their money in funds that are low cost and simply track the benchmark in, in many cases. Um, I think you know, there are pockets of interest in some of those those areas as well. So, for example, you know the rise of thematic ETFs, funds that kind of capture a trend or a story, if you like. I think we're seeing a lot more interest in those areas. So, funds that are very much geared towards robotics or um, you know, cybersecurity. These are kind of funds at the moment that are seen as hot uh, you know, investment topics because you know during a time when we've all lived through a pandemic, you know these are the themes that have taken off, um, particularly as the rise of tech stocks have kind of we've seen the rise of, of a lot of tech companies and, and the downfall now um, you know thematic ETFs that track those stories have, have done very well and again they are low they're low cost um, they're easy to understand they're transparent you get a sense of you know, where your money's going um, and perhaps yeah and perhaps there needs to be more focus on on some of these these kind of more boring or straightforward simplistic investment um, products as opposed to the yeah, the, the kind of the manager-led or manager-run uh, funds that, that perhaps investors have been um, kind of fed for, from financial publications and other media. I can see from the point of view of a journalist or, or a fund marketer that thematic investing appeals because it kind of comes with a ready-made narrative, doesn't it? But there's been a lot of research uh, into thematic fund performance by Morningstar, for example, and they show exactly the same thing happens with thematic funds as happens with active managers. Um, the theme becomes popular after it has already outperformed. That's, in a sense, what makes it popular. Investors dive in too late. There's reversion to the mean and investors lose out. What's your view on that, Owen? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I think you explained it very well. Um, and to your point earlier, um, you know, I think if a sensible approach to investing isn't to lump all your eggs into the growth stocks or the, you know, the, uh, the tech stocks ETF, latest flavor of the month, maybe if that's an interest for you, you might put in a, you know, five, 10% of your portfolio and, and we'll see what happens. But it's just to spread it out. It's, it's rule 101 of investing, which is to diversify your risk, to, to do it in, as you mentioned earlier, in a low cost way to get exposure to 
various parts of the market, some of which won't be as, as fast moving as others, but that's maybe your protection in case there's a, as, as a pullback against them. And if we're talking for long-term investment strategy, that would be the way to do it. Um, to, to, to cotton on to uh, the latest fad trend is, as you say, is just making exactly the same mistake as cottoning on to the latest fad fund manager. Um, that, that, that people were making that mistake you know, 10, 20 years ago, or even you know, five years ago in Woodford's case. Um, it is about sort of stripping back and, and, and stepping away from all of the, the, the noise and the excitement and the froth and actually saying, I want a wide exposure and yes, I'm interested in tech stocks, I'm interested in Tesla, whatever. This ETF gives me a bit more exposure than others. That's maybe my 10% little play around account, part of the portfolio. That's where I sort of play around with a personal interest um, but the rest of it is very much, you know, pushing forward in, in, in multiple directions. Okay, I, I got to say that actually one of the things that, that brings this to mind, actually, talking about the hot, the hot trend of the moment, if you look at, um, you know, there are several ETFs now that are cottoning on to the metaverse. You know, we've seen a lot of metaverse uh, products launched. And I, I kind of worry that, again, this is a, a, an area of the market that is tapping into investor interest in, in this area that really, to be honest, I mean, I don't think a lot of people really understand a, what the metaverse is, but also you know, what, what the potential is long-term for this. I think even Facebook, you know, or Meta, uh, Meta Platforms as it's now known, you know, has, has thrown a load of money at, at developing the metaverse, but, but no one quite knows what it's going to look like. And even now we're getting products, you know, devoted to this particular sector. So I do worry that, you know, there is a nascent um, area of the industry that's kind of growing now. Um, that's promoting products um, to catch on to a trend that is seen pop as popular. You know, people are talking about this sort of stuff on social media, um, and I want I, I kind of worry that investors were caught up in the hype, um, again putting money into a product without a track record um, and really understanding where you know where this thing's going to go in future. And, and one, one area that I'm I'm particularly concerned about, um, and it's a longer term trend, is the whole idea of ESG, because. You know, undoubtedly, most people, and, it, and it's a very good thing, want to you know invest in things uh, on an ethical basis, and, and that's great. However, the marketers have really caught on to this over the past past 10, 15 years, and all the big fund management companies, all the big investment advisory companies, will be promoting ESG products. Now, at the moment, there is no standard definition of what ESG means, or even the various subcategories of that. So what you think of ESG could be very different to what I think, to what David thinks. Uh, is one fund packaged in that way going to firstly satisfy all of our interests? But, but secondly, and more importantly, uh, will it be doing what it, what it says it's doing? Uh, you know, some fund companies may be labelling a fund ESG because it, it invests in companies that, I don't know, uh, don't actively burn down the rainforest. Well, they could be doing all sorts of other things that are damaging to the environment or have you know, horrendous social and governance issues. Um, but that could be their very narrow interpretation of what ESG means. Um, it's not what my interpretation means and so therefore am I investing in this product thinking that that's what it's going to be doing. You know, step forward and I, and I can see this being a big area of potential mis-selling in, in the future where you know, maybe there's lawsuits and, and we already see um, regulators taking a very keen interest in some of the claims made by fund managers and other financial institutions on their ESG products. And I can see this being a hotbed of, um, of, of lawyers getting involved in a few years' time and saying, well, look, my client invested you know, tens of thousands of pounds in your fund. 
expecting it to be delivering these sorts of returns and investing in these sorts of companies and avoiding these sorts of companies, it hasn't done that. Um, we, we, we believe they've, they've been mis, missold. And I, I think personally that will be a, a hot area in, in, in a few years' time. Yeah, I think actually you're, you're, you're completely right. I think when you talk to asset managers now, the one thing they want to talk about, the, the number one thing is what we're doing from the ESG perspective. And there's a lot of marketing that's been, you know, marketing money that's been sort of thrown behind this, this idea as well. Um, and as, as Owen has rightly said, you know, there is a lot of, there are a lot of question marks about what ESG stands for. You know, if this fund or this asset manager is doing what they say they're doing. Um, so this term greenwashing is something that's bandied about uh, quite a bit now. Um, you know, are, are asset managers um, responsible or guilty of you know, saying they're going to do something, but actually when investors look back in, in years to come and think, well, I, my expectation was you said you were going to do this from an ESG perspective and th- th- this, this investment product you've sold me has not lived up to any of those expectations. Um, it's a very grey area. And I think actually when we talk about you know, the future for um, you know, mis-selling scandals that happen. I think Owen's absolutely right. This is a potential area now where people are piling a lot of money, uh, marketing spend into, um, and investors are, are being sort of fed this story that the ESG can really only go one way because all the evidence that, that that is out there shows that firms that are the firms with the best ESG credential, the, the, the companies that have the ESG strongest ESG credentials, the ones that deliver the best returns for investors. So I think that certainly is an area to to keep an eye on. I'm very interested to hear what both of you think about the FCA's role in this. First of all, the role it played in the scandal itself and and stopping, stopping it happening, if you like, but also the very, very slow response that we've seen since then. What do you make of that, Owen? Well, I think the FCA's flaws were there they, they pre-existed Woodford's fund launch in 2014. So if, even if you go back a year or so, when he decided to launch his business, he was already under investigation by the FCA for the funds that he was running, among other funds, uh, at Invesco Perpetual. And at the time, the FCA fined Invesco Perpetual £18.6 million, which was the biggest fine for a fund management company in the UK at the time. And his funds were one of those that the FCA uh, had been scrutinising for the amount of risk they they were uh, exposing investors to. Um, So that is the context uh, through which Woodford then, just a few months later, appealed to the FCA to launch his new business, which it it, it, uh, gave him the green light in record time. And so you really have to wonder what happened at that point the FCA has just put the you know, UK's best-known fund manager through the ringer over his funds and then is, is, is letting him set up a new business in record time, much smaller business, much smaller uh, compliance team uh, to sit around him. And at the same time, you know, these are documents that I've seen, uh, when Woodford launched his business, he actually wanted a different authorised corporate director. But the FCA insisted he use what was then Capita, now Link, as the ACD. And it had actually already investigated Link for its role in, in previous um, fund uh, scandals. Now, as far as I understand it, the, the rationale at the FCA was to put these two um, organisations together because they, they thought they would feed off each other because they'd recently been maybe scarred from having been, gone, been investigated by the FCA and therefore would kind of push each other back towards being better run in a stronger compliance function. What actually happened was the reverse. 
Um, so you can trace the FCA's failings right from those decisions in early 2014. A year later, two of the founders of Woodford's new business quit after falling out of Woodford and his, and his uh, business partner, Craig Newman. Now, as part of their, their, their they were very high, high um, profile roles in, in the industry. And as part of, part of that, they were required to have ex-interviews with the FCA and talk about some of the issues that they had seen within the business. Uh, the FCA did not act on those issues. This was an early red flag a year after it launched. The first time it started actively looking at Woodford's business was 18 months later when, coincidentally, it happened to come across um, a conflict of interest in the way that some of the companies that Woodford was investing in, the way they were valued. Yet again, this didn't really prompt much interest within the FCA. You have to go forward to 2018 when the FCA actually started looking at Woodford's business more closely because he was breaching this, this so-called trash ratio where 10% of his portfolio was invested in unquoted assets and it had breached that level on a couple of occasions. And that's only when the FC took a very keen interest in the business. And then it, it did stay in touch for the final year uh, up to its, um, the fund suspension and its closure. So you have to ask, why weren't all these red flags up to that point picked up and why didn't the FCA take, a, take a, a, a stronger role in making sure the business was run in, in a more compliant, more stricter, more firmer uh, approach and actually containing Woodford's instinct to invest in some of these um, smaller um, and, and unlisted companies. And then you throw it forward to after the funnel was suspended and what's happened since. Now, we're coming up to the third anniversary of when the fund was suspended. In that time, David and I have both written books. They've both come out. They've both been published for more than a year. Um, Well-researched books, I, I, I might add, both of them. Uh, what has the FCA been doing in that time? We still haven't had their in-depth report. They've got far better access th than, than us because um, they can compel people, key people, to talk to them. We can only try and persuade key people to talk to us. They're, they've had this access, and apparently uh, in their latest disclosure, which was just before the end of the year, they said they conducted all their research, i.e. they'd done all their interviews. They were just waiting to put it together and bring out a report. Now, at the time of recording, that report still hasn't come out. There are hundreds of thousands of people who have lost you know, over a billion pounds in, in, in this uh, scandal who are waiting for answers. And their legal claims are being held up on the, ba on the back of, firstly, this FCA report and, and whether or not they will get compensation, which looks like it's going to straddle on for another year or so. So there is a lot of anticipation about what is going to come out in this report. There's the Treasury Select Committee have already admonished the uh, FCA for their delays here. And it just really um, sets even more questions about what's going on within the FCA. Why aren't they picking up early red flags, early warning signs, early, early whistleblowing? I, I spoke to several people who blew the whistle on Woodford's business uh, throughout its, its time going, and, and, and all those uh, warnings were kind of ignored or maybe shoved in a box somewhere. And, and yet the time it's taken to even come up with a, with a, a report which looks into uh, the failings within this group it, it smacks of an organisation which just does not have its uh, ducks in line internally. It cannot communicate internally. Different parts of the organisation don't talk to one another. The people who are responsible for receiving whistleblowers or, or, or having conversations with departing directors and, and receiving red flags don't talk to the people who have direct responsibility with oversight of the Woodford business 
don't talk to people who have more direct oversight with Link, for example. So it just, it, it, there's institutional and governance failures within the FCA, uh, which have really been brought to light by, by the Woodford scandal. So, uh, David, what's your view on why the FCA has dragged its feet so badly? Well, as, as Owen said, this really has been taking place at a snail's place. Uh, you know, the FCA investigation into the circumstances surrounding the suspension of the equity income fund uh, launched soon after uh, June 2019 when the announcement was made by, by Link that the fund would be suspended. So, yeah, we're coming up to three years now and there is still no final report from the FCA, um, no, no answers for the hundreds of thousands of people that are still locked in that fund. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the investors in that fund, time isn't on their side. I'm sure that there are a lot of um, retirees uh, who have sadly passed away during the time it has taken the FCA to conclude its investigation and put together a report because they deserve answers and unfortunately for some they will never get the answers that they wanted or deserved. Um, now having spoken to um, people, uh, lawyers who used to work at the FCA but also who are involved in um, uh, sort of representing firms that are subject to investigations by the regulator, you know, the news is unfortunately investors have a, a, a longer wait uh, than, than perhaps they were expecting. So the FCA updated the market in, in December last year saying it had gathered all the evidence it needed, it had conducted all the witness, witness statements, um, it needed to carry out its research and now it's putting together its report. This is just the start. Um, unfortunately, it's going to take several months, if not years, before we have a final um, verdict from the FCA because the FCA will need to put together reports. They'll need to send those reports out to the interested parties, whether that's Link or Woodford. Those interested parties will then need to form their own responses and representations. There's a chance for the firms to have an oral representation uh, at the FCA. Um, so there is a there is a whole other process that, that gets kick-started now um, and yeah speaking to people that are involved in this kind of process it can take even up to two years so unfortunately for investors there is another long wait ahead um, and sadly for, for a lot of them they will never get the answers that, that they deserve. Owen we hear rumours that Neil Woodford wants to start up again in, in fund management do you think it'll happen? This, he gave a, a, an incredible interview um, in uh, the, the period that both of our books came out last year, and, and I have my suspicions about the timing of that. It, he gave it to the, Daily, the, the Sunday Telegraph, and he talked about how sorry he was for certain areas, not, not for the whole um, uh, the, the, the problems within his business. Um, but he also talked about setting up a new business in Jersey and that this was going to be a new business, wasn't going to uh, focus on retail investors, it was going to be for professional uh, and institutional investors. Now, the story came out, there was, a, there was a, a, a lot of interest in it, and then, you know, cunning journalists uh, like myself and, and, and colleagues uh, phoned up the, the regulator in Jersey and said, um, to what's going on, um, is Woodford setting up? And they, they said, well, actually, we haven't received any applications yet. Um, and he, he shouldn't view us as a backdoor into restarting his business in the UK. So it quickly came to, to light that actually this kind of big plan of a, a business in Jersey, that wasn't going to happen. We then saw uh, that, that he had um, started uh, applications in, in the Cayman Islands, and then after that in Delaware. So he's moving across the Atlantic. Um, and, then, uh, and then it all just went very quiet for a year or so. And actually, even though he, he did send 
He did um, uh, set up some, uh, some companies. Several of the individuals who were named as directors of those businesses have recently left and gone on to do other things. Um, there are lots of rumours uh, that, that come up every time every now and then that he might be looking to do business in the Middle East, in, in China, uh, that he might be advising uh, various fund companies. None of these things ever come to fruition. Um, so I would suspect we, uh, if we ever see Woodford back, it would be in a, in a very much more um, quiet role, uh, one that we, he won't be necessarily wanting to talk about, people associated with him probably don't want too much attention on uh, and uh, we've probably seen uh, the last of Neil Woodford as a, as a vocal force in uh, the British economy. Do you agree David? Yeah I think it's very difficult to see how the Woodford name is, is, isn't tainted uh, particularly in the retail uh, investment uh, arena here in the UK. Um, as Owen said the regulator uh, has, has already said you know th that to do business here in the UK you need the regulatory permissions in order to do that um, I think it, it's still very much, let's wait and see what the FCA have to report on their investigation into the suspension before maybe they give the green light to Woodford to, to manage money again. Um, obviously there are investors out there who, who feel that Woodford still has something to offer because he obviously sees there as a market uh, out there for him to, um, to exploit and to, and to win business. So he's, he's advising a firm called Acacia Research in the, based in the US, so they've given him um, a mandate to help them with, with some of their research. Um, but I think in terms of running me retail money, those days are, are well and truly over. Um, but yes, I think if, if, if Woodford were to make a comeback in some shape or form, it would be very much below the radar. Um, and I, I, I very much doubt we'll ever see a, a, a Woodford investment management-like firm in the future that goes out there promoting itself. Um, because I, I can't imagine any retail investor would ever want to go anywhere near uh, Woodford ever again. And that's all from this episode of the Tebby podcast, brought to you by Regius Media. Do you run a financial advice or planning business? Whether it's marketing or educational content you're looking for, Regius Media can help. Just get in touch with us via the website at regismedia.com. That's regismedia.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you haven't already done so, why not subscribe to it? Or better still, leave a review. We'd love to hear your views. Finally, thank you to our guests, Owen Walker and David Ricketts. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. Until next time, from me, Robin Powell, goodbye. Goodbye.